Well, good morning. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to bring God's Word before you this morning as we continue our summer series in the Psalms. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Psalm 146. But before we come to the Psalm this morning, it's important that we remember what the Psalms are. The Psalms are poetic expressions of praise to God that were primarily intended to be sung by God's people in worship. They're not juvenile attempts at shallow platitudes, quite the opposite. The Psalms express the depth of human emotion, from profound grief to exuberant joy. They help us to learn to praise God regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in. The Psalms actually were compiled after Israel returned from exile. And that's one of the things that helps us understand that no matter what season we are in, whether it is in a season of joy or a season of grief, that we are called to be a people of praise. I think Calvin helps us to understand this well when he writes in his commentary of the Psalms, there is not an emotion which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror or rather the Holy Spirit has drawn all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions which one's minds, the, men, the minds of men are wont to be agitated. The other parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God enjoined His servants to announce to us. But here the prophets themselves seeing that they are exhibited to us as speaking to God, laying open their innermost thoughts and affections, call or rather draw each of us the examination of himself, each of us, in order that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject and the many vices with which we abound may remain concealed. This vein is what makes the Psalms both invaluable and difficult. We have a deep need for our hearts to be exposed nourished and restored, yet our inclination is to hide. We know we should be willing to expose our hearts to correction, but we're often overwhelmed and reluctant to be vulnerable. But the exposure of our hearts is exactly what we need. The Psalms do not shy away from this, which is what makes them so invaluable to our growth in the Christian life. God, in his love for us, does not leave his people to wallow in sin. He exposes, he corrects, and he transforms us bit by bit into, his, into the likeness of Christ. The natural result of our sanctification and growth is to praise. To know God is to lead to a life that praises him. I think the structure of the Psalms also helps show this, and that if you look at the Psalms, there is a progression. They're not just a random assortment of praise songs. They have a structure to them and an overall theme. Robert Godfrey in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms, writes, the great theme of the Psalter is God's goodness and unfailing love for the righteous. God is always good and in ways completely compatible with his holiness. And in his goodness, he never fails in his love and his care for those who belong to him. The response of God's people to this goodness and unfailing love is praise. There are 150 psalms in the Psalter that are divided into five books, 
And each one of these books focuses on a particular theme. Book one primarily reflects the confidence God's people have in his care for them. Book two shows God's people committing to his kingdom, even in the midst of struggle and sin. Book three, the Psalms here predominantly show God's people and the kingdom of Israel in crisis. And in book four, the Psalms display how God's people can rest in his faithfulness despite their faithlessness. Book five, which is where our psalm is, is in what we could call a book that is all about the celebration of God's people as they respond in thanksgiving to his tender care. And if you consider the psalms as a whole, it's clear that as you move from the beginning to the end, the psalms increasingly call for God's people to offer praise to the Lord. This crescendo, this call crescendos in the last five psalms, which each begin and end with the word hallelujah which is a corporate call to praise the Lord. Our psalm today, Psalm 146, is the first of these concluding hallelujah psalms. As we examine this psalm, we're going to first see in verses 1 and 2, not only a corporate call to praise, but an individual call and commitment to honor and praise the Lord. Then in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist, almost as though reading the minds of the singers, gives a sobering warning about placing our trust not in our eternal God, but in man. And then finally, the psalm closes in the verses 5 through 10 by showing us, showing those who have placed their trust in our eternal God and his faithfulness are truly blessed. The psalmist calls in this psalm, the psalmist's call in this psalm leaves us, if we are honest, asking, can I really sing this? Or better, who can truly live and sing this psalm? But before we go into examining the psalm itself, please join me in going before our God in prayer. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word. We ask that by your spirit you would enlighten our hearts that we might understand how we can learn to truly praise you. Quiet our minds and hearts from distractions and help us to grow in our knowledge of who you are and who you've called us to be as your people. Amen. This is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The psalmist opens this psalm with a resounding call to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. This exclamation 
is not a mere suggestion, but a passionate and urgent summons to engage in worship and adoration. It is an invitation to every believer to join in the chorus of praise and to align their hearts and minds with the eternal God. Notice there is an outward call followed by immediately an inward commitment. It is a heartfelt offering of worship to God. It reminds us that God's desire isn't simply for outward appearance or an empty sacrifice. God is concerned not just with our actions, but with our hearts. As the Lord declared to Samuel when he was observing David's older brothers, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is why self-examination is central to the growth of the believer. It's important that we pay attention to our hearts and ask ourselves if we are praising not just publicly, but privately, in the core of our being. It's important to join in corporate praise, which is why the first call in the psalm is a corporate call. But the psalmist recognizes our natural desire for our hearts is to remain closed off. We are exhorted to praise because our natural state is not one of praise. This then brings us to verse 2, where the commitment is expanded. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing while I still have my being. In answer to the outward call and the inward commitment of his soul, the psalmist responds further by committing his life to be one of outward praise. It's not a commitment for a fleeting moment or for simply during a worship service, but for a lifetime, for as long as the psalmist draws breath. For to know God is to naturally respond with praise. It leads to a life that sings out because the heart is not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. The psalmist urges his soul to praise the Lord as long as he lives, a sentiment echoed throughout the scriptures. Our praise should not be fleeting or conditional, but should flow from the heart that acknowledges God's unchanging faithfulness in every season of life. There is a consistency, or there should be a consistency, between a heart that belongs to God and the outward fruit. And this brings us to the warning in verses 3 and 4. Before expanding on why the Lord is worthy of our praise, the psalmist pauses to give a stark warning about man's inclination to place faith in princes. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Now, the word here for prince, the word here, princes, is biblical shorthand for those who hold influence, power, wealth, or the ability to simply accomplish what needs to be done. These princes are not unique to the ancient world. We still have princes today. Uh, we still live in a world where others, for various reasons, hold power and influence over us. And we naturally find ourselves placing our trust in them. We've placed our trust in leaders, in countries. We'll celebrate an Independence Day this week. We have a natural tendency to place our trust in those things that we can tangibly grasp. How often, how many times, say every other November, do you find yourself watching with bated breath for the result of an election? hoping that this result will bring cultural or societal change we desperately want to see. How much does your mood change 
when your college football team makes that final playoff? Do you find yourself vindicated when you're able to highlight their success around the coffee table or at work? Personally, this is where I seem to struggle, as my family contests, that my mood tends to drastically change from heights to lows, depending on whether or not my team won the game I wanted them to win. If you want to test where your trust is, reflect on where you find yourself disappointed. It's important to note that the psalmist isn't warning against unjust men and women with power, though there are other warnings in Scripture on that topic. What the psalmist is dealing with here is the reality that oftentimes God uses men and women and their gifts to bless and help the world. I'm sure many in this room this morning could join with me in recalling examples of people in our lives that have helped us grow, whether they're bosses, mentors, deacons, elders, friends, or family members. There are countless ways in which our lives are enriched and prospered because someone used their knowledge, influence, or position to bless us. Being grateful is not what we're warned against here. The warning here is not to place our trust in those around us. They may be able to assist us in life, but they are not able to save us. The reality, though, is our disordered hearts are quick to misplace our trust and put it in men. Imagine, if you would, with me, that you've been working for a company for 10 years. You've learned the culture, you've got a decent set of skills and abilities, but you've not advanced as far as you'd like in terms of position or salary. Well, one day your boss comes to you, and we'll call him Mr. Wise, and says, I like you. I've been watching you. You're my guy, and this is going to be your year. I'm going to take you places. It's staggering how quickly our hearts can place our trust in what this Mr. Wise is offering us. But what happens if Mr. Wise changes his opinion about you? What happens if Mr. Mr. Wise's boss, we'll call him Mr. Brisk, decides he doesn't like Mr. Wise, and the next day Mr. Wise is no longer at the office because he's been let go? What will that mean for you? What What will that mean for the grand plans that you had? And thinking about how easily we place our faith in the wrong places, we need to hear the psalmist's warning. Put not your trust in princes. Why? Well, look at verse 4 with me. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Men are mortal and fallible. There is no salvation in man. Whether in a single moment or gradually over time, man will disappoint you. Either by not fulfilling a promise in the way that we wanted, or simply by dying. One day, they will breathe their last, and in that moment, their plans will perish. Even if the person you are trusting doesn't willfully seek to harm you, because of death, this is the inevitable reality. There is an odd thing that happens when someone we know and love dies. It's not uncommon for us to feel anger at the person who has died, as though they had chosen to leave us. Brothers and sisters, God has given us people in this world, fathers, mothers, friends, spouses, children, to help grow and nourish us. But they are not where we should draw our strength, hope, and security from. 
no matter how much we treasure and find joy in the blessings God has given us, we must trust the giver of the blessing, not the blessing itself. And the psalmist following this warning immediately points us to where our faith and trust truly should live, with the one who will not die, the one who can truly offer salvation. This is, in verses 5 through 10, this forms the heart of the psalm, as the psalmist expounds on the faithful character of our covenant-keeping God. It is because of His eternal, unchanging nature that we're able to find security. Unlike man, the Lord will not pass away, nor will His plans fail. So the psalmist declares in verses 5 through 6, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Indeed, it's the Lord who upholds the universe by the word of his power and sustains not just mankind, but every living creature. By referring to the Lord as the God of Jacob, the psalmist reminds us of how he has kept faith with his people. He was the one who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and delivered Egypt, Israel from bondage in Egypt, established and protected them in the land he promised to Israel despite their unfaithfulness. While man's plans change and end with their last breath, God's plans and promises are eternally kept. God does not want us to trust in people or the things of this world, not because he doesn't desire good things for us, because he knows that we're putting our, place, our trust in the wrong place. Martin Luther had the right of it when he wrote, whatever you confide in and cling to, that really is your God. And we deserve a jealous God. God's desire is for us to put our trust in him because he's the only one that can fulfill the joy, security, and strength we long for. This is the blessing of the one whose hope and trust is in the Lord. In, psalm, in the next part of the psalm, verses 7 through 9, the psalmist declares how the Lord has kept faith and delivered the righteous who trust in him. It's important that the righteous are righteous here not by works, but by faith. The psalmist declares that God gives justice to the oppressed, food to the hungry, freedom to the imprisoned, sight to the blind, raises up the downtrodden, and provides protection for the stranger, the widow, and the fatherless. These descriptions are not of different groups of people. These are descriptions of the believer. The believer who confesses they are blind, oppressed, and enslaved to sin, hungry for God's law, naturally alienated to God. Here the psalmist sets the believer's confidence to the Lord, who unlike princes, forever keeps his promises and is worthy of trust. He brings justice and freedom to those oppressed and enslaved by sin. He feeds us with his word, opens our eyes to truly see, and lifts us up as he adopts us into his family. In verse 9, again, the psalmist pauses to remind us of where we should not place our trust. He contrasts how the believer is vindicated with his trust with those who do not put their faith in the right places. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. 
The Lord will judge the wicked who persist in trusting princes as their plans not only fail and are unkept, but they result in ruin. Not only can they not save, but our princes of this world only bring about destruction and judgment. The psalmist closes in verse 10 by affirming God's eternal reign. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the call to rejoice in the truth that our God reigns over all creation and His kingdom is everlasting. His kingship extends to every generation, offering us hope and security in the midst of a changing world. This truth should ignite our hearts with unceasing praise and adoration. That brings us to the question we posed earlier. Who can really sing this psalm? It's not simply by being exhorted to praise that we learn to praise. In fact, if I were to corner you into responding about how's your praise life going, I think I'd likely get one of these responses. The first one is what I'll call the hypocritical response. When asked, how is your praise life going, I might hear something like, um, it's going well. Uh, I figured this whole thing out. Um, and I really like you to not ask me any more about it. Um, it's kind of like when someone asks how you are doing and the easiest way out of the uncomfortable conversation to say, I'm fine, I'm good. The second response I might get is what I'll call the zealot response. Uh, it might go something like this, no, my praise life isn't going well, but I'm going to resolve to do better at it. I'm going to journal about it, in fact, every day during my quiet time, and I'm going to make a sincere effort to be a better disciple. I want to be a leader that others can look to as an example of a good praise life. And the last response is one that I'll call the, the one of resignation. It says something like, thank you for asking me about my praise life. Like many other things I should be doing, I just can't get it right. I appreciate the exhortation, and I'll just add it to one more area that I struggle at as a disciple. I wish I was better at it, but I just can't seem to figure it out. And the problem with each of these responses is that they are trusting in the wrong thing. As the psalmist writes, do not trust in princes. Each of these responses is looking at us, our mortal being, as though we have the ability to offer true praise to God and lead a life that perfectly reflects the praise we are given. We know there's an inconsistency, and there's only one that can truly lead this psalm because, they per because he perfectly desires to make the Father known. And by perfectly keeping what's required of the Father, he lives a life of praise. Jesus is the only one who is perfectly able to sing the psalm. And he doesn't just sing it, but he invites his brothers and sisters to join with him. He is the choir master that joyfully rises and proclaims hallelujah, triumphantly leading the congregation. It is only Jesus who can look inwardly at his soul and resolve, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. When we find ourselves looking at the life of praise the psalmist calls us to, it's not surprising that we feel overwhelmed by the exhortation because it's an exhortation we are incapable on our own of fulfilling. We are incapable because of our fallen state to truly live what we're called to live. It's why exhortation 
alone does not enable praise. It is only the living waters of the gospel that enable us to respond, not because we can generate enough enthusiasm or emotion. The better response to the question of how is your praise life going is one that honestly recognizes that we are growing in our understanding of the sufficiency of Christ. When we look at our own hearts, we should not look to ourselves as though we are princes able to be trusted. Our hearts need to look to Jesus. It is only by looking at Him that we're able to grow in our offering of praise as we grow in the Spirit, as we examine ourselves and place our trust in the only Son of Man that has faced and defeated death. And we are confident that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That is when we are able to offer praise, not because it's coming out of our own ability and strength. Growing up, I was often taught the story of David and Goliath. And the lesson that I was typically given in that story was the call to be like David. Trust in God and have enough faith. Lead and stand out from others in conquering the giants of my life in this world. Others might hide, but if you trust God enough, he will let you defeat your enemies and his. There's actually a song I listened to growing up that articulates what is being described here when it says, Oh, what I will do to have the kind of strength it takes to stand before giants. The problem is, we're not called to be David. We're Israel. Not only unable to take the field, but literally cowering in our tents, unable to move forward unable to do what we know we should do because it's not what we're supposed to do. Our job is not to face Goliath. Our job is to trust in the champion that God sends forward that has the ability to stand. We are called to follow our older brother who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're not called to stand in the place of the choir master leading the praise. We are called to join in the praise that he is leading. Rather than trusting ourselves, we place our trust in our promise-keeping, covenant-fulfilling, eternal Lord, who will reign forever. Just pray with me. Father, we confess that your mercies are new every morning. Help us to not look to ourselves or the things of this world for our security and trust. Rather, we ask that you would grow us in our true older brother, Christ, the Son of Man that eternally reigns and in whom every promise of God finds its yes and amen. Renew us by your Spirit. Plant your word deep in us and help us by being united to Christ, become a people willing and joyfully able to join in in offering praise to you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.